So Hannah, uh, real broadband, it's going to be really expensive, right? Something that, you know, we could never, ever invest in. That's not true in any way. It's pretty affordable um, overall. We just got a story out of Jackson County in Indiana. The Jackson County Rural Electric Co-op there is going to build out fiber to the home to its entire service area, 1,400 square miles, about 24,000 members for only $60 million in the next five years. That seems really cheap. I'm shocked. It's pretty reasonable overall. All right, well, that sounds great. And we're going to dig pretty deep on this issue of rural broadband access today on this episode of Building Local Power. My name is Nick Stumelanger, and I'm the communications manager for the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. And you just heard Hannah Trosel, who is a researcher for our Community Broadband Networks Initiative, and also on the line is frequent host and founder of the Building Local Power podcast, Christopher Mitchell. Hey, good to hear from you. Let's just break it down at the very beginning of this issue of rural broadband access. And I'd like it if both of you could just give our listeners a little bit of perspective on what the quality of rural broadband access is, what it is, and the issues that we're facing. Sure. And I I think it might be interesting to note that I I think I come at this from a little bit more of a detached uh, perspective. Uh, I grew up not necessarily in large cities, but in urban areas, uh, moved through a number of them, frankly, uh, whereas Hannah comes from a more rural part of Minnesota. And so, um, you know, has a more um, direct relationship with this. But I have to say that I'm somewhat offended when I hear any claims that we just can't connect uh, rural populations with high quality access because we can. We don't have to settle for some kind of of poor substitute, something that's just merely cost effective uh, and leaves rural areas with substantially worse access than one would find in urban areas. Uh, you can look at the numbers in terms of how much it costs when you do it well. Uh, you can look at the long-term costs. And frankly, uh, it makes sense to connect rural communities with high-quality access. So uh, I'll just say that's where I'm coming from on this. Yeah, you could actually say that I'm a child of co-ops because my electric service growing up was from the electric co-op from the next county over. And my telephone service and um, internet service actually came through the telephone co-op. Minnesota has a great tradition of cooperatives, and it has really built up the rural areas of the state. Nick, I, I wanted to come back and mention one other thing, which is that, that this country has a longstanding commitment to universal access, whether it's through electricity. We made sure that just about everyone had access to it. Uh, telephones. Um, you know, it, It's interesting. When I talked to a rural um, uh, groups in Wisconsin, I met a group that actually represents businesses all across Wisconsin, and they noted that some of the first roads the state of Wisconsin built were for, to the dairies. And that's one of the reasons we think of Wisconsin as a dairy state, because once government built roads, the marketplace for dairy products thrived. Um, so um, there's a couple of key points I always want to make. One is we have this historic commitment. And the second is this is not charity. I, I can't stress this enough um, that, that this is something that we all benefit from, making sure that people like Hannah grow up um, and being able to be productive, being able to get a great education, being able to you know push the limits of their, of their individual talents. Uh, that's something that benefits all of us and is not something that urban areas should think smugly, oh, we're doing this out of the goodness of our hearts. Urban areas benefit when everyone has high-quality infrastructure structure access. 
something we love on Building Local Power, as you know, are statistics. So what is the current situation for rural America? How how many people are not connected? How many people don't have access to these high quality uh, options? Well, let me go back to the last good statistic that came from the FCC as to that. That would have been about 39% of rural Americans did not have high quality internet access of 25 megabits per second by 3 megabits per second. The last statistic that came out, for some reason, decided to include um, satellite data. Um, Satellite coverage is not a substitute for a good internet service. And so it has greatly skewed the latest statistic. And you see numbers anywhere from 19 million people in rural areas to much higher numbers. Uh, I think 19 million is the people who can't get any kind of DSL type of connection. And there's a higher number for people. Um, it's in the, I think, closer to 40 million when you look at cannot get access to the um, a higher quality broadband product. That strikes me, Chris, that we're losing out on a lot of opportunity and a lot of productivity in these rural areas. What kinds of things are being shut out of these rural of these rural communities by not having high quality access? I know you mentioned some of them, but just enumerate them for our audience. Well, look, I mean, one of the things that has struck me for years was a conversation I had in rural Minnesota with a a guy who had been working on what has become RS Fiber Co-op, which is as as you know one of our incredibly successful um, approaches to rural broadband service. We've written about it in a report uh, called Fertile Fields. People can find it on our website. Um, but he he said that his family had been farming a, a piece of land for I believe it was four or five generations, and he and his wife were concerned that if they continued to live in that area without high quality broadband, they would actually be harming their children, and they were considering moving because their children would not have opportunities if they grew um, in this land that their family was so attached to, and and I just think that's. That's something that families should not have to make the choice over. And frankly, they do not have to make the choice over when we get the policy right. Uh, the, the question is ultimately, you know, how should we do it? What is the best approach from a perspective of quality and from a perspective of cost effectiveness to make sure that everyone has high quality service? And as I argue, um, and as, as Hannah's research has shown, uh, we can do this. I think we can ultimately connect everyone who's on the electric grid to high-quality broadband service as well using some of these time-tested methods, which are in rural areas, um, public ownership and cooperatives. I wouldn't say that they're they're equal answers. Um, In areas that have cooperatives, that's probably the best approach. In areas that don't have cooperatives, it may be smart to first see if you can create a new cooperative or get an existing cooperative to expand near you. Um, But there's also areas where you might have an enthusiastic local government, whether that's a city, county, township, where you can get the kind of competence you need to build a municipal network. Um, in many cases, municipal networks are, um, are are working on these issues as well. But I think when we look at the, the vast amounts of territory involved, co-ops are probably the best solution. And and I think, you know, Hannah can tell us more about um, many co-ops that have done this, but, but one in particular that is um, showing what can be done. Yeah, across the U.S., there are about 900 electric cooperatives, um, and about 54 of those have some sort of project for improving Internet access in their communities. One of the latest ones that we saw was Tom Bigby Electric Cooperative in Alabama. 
they have started a project called Freedom Fiber. Freedom! <laughs> okay. <laughs> so Freedom Fiber, it's going to start serving two towns in early September. It's going to be in one of the least served counties in the U.S., 75% of Marion County does not have access to broadband. And Tom Bigby Electric Cooperative is going to start building in the two largest population centers. It's only going to be about $8 million. And then they're going to build out over the next five years, serve the two biggest population centers in the county. And then it's going to be another $30 million to build out to their entire service area. One of the the key issues that it's worth noting is that when you look at these numbers, you know, it comes down to uh, sometimes $5,000 per household as you get into lower density areas. And, and for a small number of households, even more than that. But um, the cost of building electrical networks is actually greater than the cost of building fiber networks if you talk to a, a electric utilities that do both. Um, and so you might wonder, well, how did we ever build electricity out if it was so expensive and now we can't build fiber out? And the answer is because AT&T, CenturyLink, Frontier, these other big companies are hoovering up all of the money that is available um, through services like the Universal Fund, which is now called Connect America through the Federal Communications Commission. Um, they're giving out billions of dollars and they're spending it on some of the worst products. Um, just, I mean, you look at what AT&T is doing. AT&T is going to be getting $2.5 billion from the federal government to expand rural access. The speeds are going to deliver obsolete. The prices are 60 to $70 per month for this very slow service that has data caps. It's awful. And the amount that they're getting per household is actually about $2,400 which would cover the cost of fiber in a lot of Indiana for rural areas per house. Um, in Vermont, uh, we're seeing this as well with the local, um, tele the big telephone company there, Fairpoint, where they're getting so much money that it's almost the cost of building fiber, but because they're focused on shareholder returns, they're not putting it into fiber, they're putting it into DSL, and they're going to look for future handouts to get higher quality service, there's no doubt. Um, so when you, when you look at this, you might be thinking, well, Hannah saying that that's really costly. But actually, it's well within the realm of what we're already subsidizing firms to build uh, for obsolete technology. And if we actually directed this to local institutions that wanted to invest in the communities, uh, we would basically be there. I mean, there might be a need for some of those far farther away farms to get a one-time grant. Uh, but the cost of the ongoing uh, service is actually low enough that these electric utilities will not need operating subsidies. They, they may need one-time capital subsidies. And that's totally affordable and totally doable if we would just stop writing checks to AT&T and CenturyLink and Frontier and these other companies that have totally failed rural America. So to kind of lay out the thread of what you're saying here, millions and millions of rural Americans do not have a high-quality uh, broadband internet access. And we have solutions that we know are tried and true, you know, building on the infrastructure of these cooperatives, these municipal utilities, and even new kind of infrastructure investments um, in these smaller communities that are going to be able to allow for local providers. But you see so much money getting siphoned to these monopolies and these these giant political and market power entities like AT&T and CenturyLink. So how do we communicate that to those in power to say, stop giving money to these people that are providing a terrible service for rural America? 
That is a very good question in terms of what we can actually do about it. And in, in fact, when you, when you look at building local power, it's challenging. Now, I'll just go back a little bit to a presentation I just gave in the Appalachians in Marietta, Ohio, in Southeast Ohio. And in that, I was making the point that in um, rural Kentucky, um, we already see some high-quality fiber-to-the-home networks in large areas of Kentucky because of co-ops that have reinvested historically in them. And after I spoke, one of the people came up to me and said, did you know that actually one of those areas that has fiber-to-the-home is one of the poorest counties in the entire country, not just Kentucky? And they've been able to create jobs be- because of this, which I think just makes the point, first of all, that that this can be done when you have the right incentives and the right investments. But if you look at other areas of Kentucky where we had local success stories, many of them are building wireless solutions. And that's because they're making very rational decisions, which is to say – The cost of building fiber is very expensive in the first few years. Uh, It's a very high capital cost. And so lower income counties, you know, counties that that have bleak job prospects and people are unfortunately feeling that they have to move out of in order to get jobs, um, those counties don't have the money to go and build fiber to the home. Now, in talking to them, many of them realize that over 30 years, the costs of operating and, and building wireless networks actually exceeds the costs of fiber optic networks. It's just that fiber optic networks are all front-loaded. And so what we have is a financing challenge that local communities themselves can will really struggle to meet without innovative financing options like we saw in RS Fiber, actually. So to a limited extent, some local communities may be able to get around that. But we absolutely need the federal government to help out in these areas. And for that, we need rural folks to be educating themselves and demanding their representatives and their senators uh, actually pursue what's best for the county rather than just what they hear is working in the inside the beltway of D.C. I mean, the problem is, is that you need a federal government solution. And that federal government solution is going to come from an area in which the only voices people listen to are AT&T and CenturyLink and Verizon and the big cable companies. So we need to break through that kind of lobbyist power in D.C. in order to make sure that we have the right programs to finance these local solutions. A point I know you made during your presentation at the Appalachian uh, Connectivity Summit was that wireless has a little bit of a problem going through a mountain, has a little bit of a problem going through you know large areas, large fields where there may be telephone wires, and I think that's a good point to make. You know, for anyone that is looking for a solution, it's 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 good to look at this fiber that gets in the ground that goes right to the house, and that you understand, you know, person to person that you're going to have good connectivity if you have a wire going to your house. You're able to get on the internet. You have the upload speeds, the download speeds that you need, that type of thing. Yes, I think it is worth remembering that wireless is not magic. It does have problems. I mean, particularly in areas like West Virginia, in the Appalachians, in the Rockies. Now, it is true that fiber is going to be much more expensive. And in some cases, it may be prohibitively expensive. Um, wireless could be a good short-term solution. But um, I think that we should not forget that we took electricity to just about everyone in the country. And over time, we can find ways of cost-effectively getting fiber out to everyone if we look for the right entities, which are the cooperatives that will reinvest all of the gains until they connect to everyone.
And we've seen a number of cooperatives work with both fiber and wireless solutions for rural areas. I was recently just looking at the Orcas Power and Light Co-op. They operate as Rock Island Communications. Um, They took over an old DSL network, and then they have been building fiber to the home out in San Juan County in Washington, which is about 20 islands. So as they build from island to island, they've also been using wireless to connect further away islands. And they're hoping to cover their service area in mid-2018. I think that's one of the the key issues is recognizing that uh, the time element. And people often forget about the time element, but the co-op is going to keep reinvesting and keep reinvesting. AT&T is going to keep extracting and keep extracting from the community. And over time, those trends are they're either exciting if you're a co-op or really disturbing if you're served by AT&T. Both of you have mentioned uh, rural electric cooperatives, cooperatives that are being formed around internet access, as well as municipal utilities, You know, being able to invest in these networks for themselves. And I kind of want to get a little bit of a sense of the barriers that exist to expansion, you know, whether it's to these municipalities or these rural electric cooperatives looking at their neighbors, literally, literally their neighbors and saying, you should you deserve the Internet access just like we have. Um, So how is that coming up in the political scene or, you know, in any other way? It varies from state to state. We have seen many municipalities that have their own fiber networks wanting to share it now. Partially, this is um, self-interested in that they have a large investment in a fixed cost of um, like head-end investments that uh, include a network operating center and the ability to deliver television signals and things like that. Where if they can spread it across a wider base, is they're going to be um, is going to be much less risky and they'll have a greater return with which um, those who uh, make a profit often reinvest in the community. Uh, but many communities also recognize just the benefits of a strong region. And so you see communities like Chattanooga fighting for the right to expand to their neighbors when the state will not allow them to. Tennessee has literally chosen, rather than allowing cities like Morristown, Jackson, Tullahoma, Pulaski, Chattanooga to expand at no cost to taxpayers, Tennessee is taking $45 million of state taxpayer money and trying to give it to companies like AT&T because AT&T is so powerful in the state. It's it's incredibly frustrating to see that municipalities that have been incredibly successful, I think Chattanooga made like $20 million in net income last year. Um, they're not able to use that to better their surrounding communities uh, because the state has decided instead it wants to use taxpayer dollars uh, to throw at a company like AT&T that is literally delivering a service that is 1,000 times slower at a greater cost to the rural areas. Um, now, Hannah has also tracked a number of barriers to rural electric co-ops, which are actually violate federal law, but states still have, have them in place. A lot of these barriers for cooperatives are actually based around funding. They prevent the co-ops from using Department of Agriculture money to build networks for internet service. Now, a number of states have started to encourage cooperatives to invest in fiber networks. They have passed some laws just straight up saying, yes, electric co-ops, you should do this. This would be great. That would be Tennessee. And then there are cases like in Indiana where the state realized 
that they needed to explain some issues with pull attachments. And they passed um, an act called the Fiber Act specifically to encourage co-ops to use their existing infrastructure. They had to actually allow the co-ops to use all their easements that they had previously had. North Carolina is the state that had prevented electric co-ops from providing internet service. There have been a number of little ways around it, such as partnering with other telephone co-ops or local telephone companies, or not directly offering internet service to the public, but having sort of dark fiber. I know one had to like create a subsidiary called, I think it was Lumbee River Electric Co-op, had to create a subsidiary called Blue Wave Connections. The rules around co-ops are complicated, and they vary so much state to state. Yeah, it, it really strikes me that our research and, and your expertise, both of you, kind of runs the gamut from these great state programs and investment programs, um, and I guess even just the <laughs> the infrastructure allowing these cooperatives to invest, such as Minnesota, to all the way to North Carolina, where it seems like the state legislatures, the state government in general, is not wanting their rural areas. They're already disadvantaged and areas that are losing population and losing economic vitality to make themselves better. It seems like a no-brainer to me that these communities should be able to invest in better internet access and all the benefits that come with it. But it seems like kind of an odd thing. Why are these state legislatures so against this investment? You have to recognize that the people working in state legislatures, the elected officials, many of them mean well, and they're really trying to represent the best interests of their community. Uh, Let's give them the benefit of the doubt. Um, I think North Carolina has some exceptions in particular. But they are very limited in their capacity. They have almost no staff to help them understand issues. Many of them are, are normal people who have not studied these issues in depth. They're, they're people who have other jobs. Um, and the only people they can get information from are lobbyists, um, you know, because there is not a local group that is going to inform uh, an elected official in North Carolina or Tennessee about the public interest view on telecom. Telecom is kind of just this forgotten thing. Um, you know, if you're working in energy, there's lots of environmental groups that are working it. They're still totally outnumbered, but in telecom, there's practically no one. So state legislatures are really at the mercy of these big cable and telephone company lobbyists. Um, and that's to some extent why, you know, even though we oppose additional barriers and, and we try to work with state legislatures where we can, one of the things that's so exciting about cooperatives is that largely they can they can make investments that work. They may have to jump through some hoops, as Hannah was describing. But um, people who are listening, who are served by an electric co-op or a telephone co-op, and, and they're, they're unhappy with their broadband service, should contact their co-op board. And they should talk to their neighbors and organize local businesses to demand that the co-op do something about it. This is something that we have a ton of resources on at muninetworks.org, the, the website that, that houses most of our broadband work. Um, a lot of of it is work that Hannah's done. Uh, there's a number of interviews also that I've done with electric co-ops about this. So we've created a wealth of, of resources for people who want to learn more about how they can push their own co-ops uh, to solve this problem for them. So as we're kind of heading to the end here, I think it would be useful for our audience to kind of have a little bit of connective tissue with some of our other Building Local Power episodes. How does internet access, how does local investment for high-quality internet access fit in kind of the philosophy of the Institute for Local Self-Reliance? How does this all fit together, and can you kind of you know, map that for us, either of you? 
The Institute for Local Self-Reliance is really focused on how to make the maximum use of your resources locally, how to make sure you have a lot of political and economic power locally. Without economic power, you struggle to have political power, um, which is to say that if, you know, if your community is dependent on jobs from Walmart and, and other massive firms, you probably don't have much control over the future of your community. Now, if you are generating electricity locally, that means that money you're paying for for this thing that everyone uses is staying in the community. It's recycling in the community. If you uh, are doing that with your broadband service as well, then not only are you keeping that money in the community, often you're going to have much better broadband service, which means you're going to have better job prospects. You're going to have higher property values. You're going to be a place that people want to come to, which is going to make your community uh, more valuable, and it's going to make it easier to just have this positive cycle of investment in the community and um, creating kind of a, a virtuous circle. So um, you know, it's, it's hard to have a, a thriving economy today without a high-quality broadband option. It will be even harder tomorrow. And without those high-quality jobs and, and that sort of investment, it's harder to be a place that people want to live. And, and so this all basically um, comes together and helps you to be more self-reliant. So this has been such a great conversation and very informative for me and I'm sure for our listeners on how rural broadband kind of fits into this whole mission statement. And, you know, something we do every week is we ask our guests for a reading recommendation. So I'd like to ask uh, both of you, do you have a reading recommendation, watching, listening, anything that would be great for our listeners to uh, experience? Hannah. So the book that I'm going to recommend is not at all related to this topic. It is a book that I have been reading at night. It is called The White Goddess by Robert Graves. It is a very old book. It's called A Grammar of Poetic Myth, but it's more like an autobiography about Graves' life and how his research consumed him. Great. Thank you. Chris? Let me start with uh, the book that I'm reading at night right now, which is a book called Machine Man by Max Berry. It really captures a kind of leftist, snarky author's take on an engineer on an engineer approaching the world and i i'm just loving it for all these asides and things like that if you like snark and if you like that kind of left left-wing perspective um this book really nails it and and i will just also say that max berry's books in general i've read most of them uh really cover well what happens if we do not restrain in very large corporate power uh they're often kind of near future dystopic novels in which corporations have much more control over our lives but the, i would say that a recommendation that i can recommend from both hannah and i because we both read this and we both found it amazing because it was on topic and i think far more interesting than i expected is a book called electricity for rural america the fight for the rea which is the rural electrification administration it's by clayton Brown. It's a book that's almost 40 years old, I think. And I got it because I wanted to know the history. And I literally was thinking to myself, all right, this is going to put me to sleep for a few weeks, but I'm going to get through it. And I opened it up and I got sucked in and it was almost like a mystery. I just found it to be incredibly exciting uh, the way the, the it was almost like a, a uh, this suspense thriller of how the REA came to pass, the people behind it, the interests, the talking points from the big companies at the time, which were trying to oppose these co-ops. And, and I just, I, I have to say, if you can find it, I highly recommend it. I just wanted to add that there's a fascinating section in the middle of it about the design of a report cover. It's kind of off topic, 
but it's just such a human element to this book. It's about how they really liked putting red barns on their report covers to try to encourage the man who was in charge to read them because they knew he really liked red barns. Oh, that's that's a great small little element of that. Um, I'll give my recommendations as well, and I'll, I'll keep it pretty short. So I've been reading a lot of short story collections this summer, and one that I can't recommend enough is uh, The Shell Collector by Anthony Doerr. There's just a number of different stories in here that kind of go into the human experience, um, the intersection with nature, just really, really fun. And um, short stories, as I am kind of learning, because I haven't really gotten into them too much before, is that you can just read a little bit. You read the story, it's like 30, 40, 50 pages, and then you can just completely get out of that world. You're not sucked in. You don't have to like spend hours and hours reading the same book. It's It's great. All right. Thank you so much, Chris and Hannah, for joining me today. It was a great discussion. Thank you. Thanks, Nick. You can find all the links to what we discussed today on ILSR.org on the show page. And you can go to our website, ILSR.org slash donate to help us produce more podcasts, have more information for you and click on the show page for this episode. You can also sign up for our newsletters, connect with us on Facebook and Twitter and rate this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher or wherever you find your podcast. A big thank you for our theme music. That's Funk Interlude by Dysfunction Al. For the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, I'm Nick Stumelanger. Thank you so much for listening for this episode of Building Local Power. Mm-hmm.